Lord, we do agree with those prayers and do desire that uh, you work in a even a mightier way than we can think or imagine in all the circumstances and people that have been lifted up and that you would continue to use them as your instruments even far beyond what they can think or imagine. We just praise you that you desire to minister to people far more than we could even imagine ourselves and you have a plan and you've just simply chosen to use us in a little way to accomplish what you have foreordained from the foundations of the world. So we just praise you today and as we look at your word that it would help us to be more equipped to be able to minister to a lost world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can't emphasize too much the need to get to and go into God's Word to evaluate all things. And you can be reminded of this almost every day when you come into contact with different people. I've been emailing a person that is a believer but not into the Word and has fallen for some of these odd ideas that crop up. A lot of them are easy to detect if, in fact, you have a biblical foundation, but if you don't, then you kind of leave yourself open to whatever idea comes along. And unfortunately, there are very, very few people that are biblically grounded So this applies to every area, and you know that I kind of emphasize, in some cases, science even. There's a biblical foundation for science Mm -hmm. and mathematics, like Linda likes to mention as well. Biblical foundation for all things. And music. Music, yep. In fact, music goes all the way back, mentioned very early in Scripture. There's not an area that you can't think of. And certainly some of these basic areas as well, how do you live? What is life all about? What is a Christian all about? And in Romans, we're dealing with chapters 6, 7, and 8, and we'll look at 5 through 7 this morning, right at the heart of the doctrine of sanctification. And just like a lot of believers are not grounded in terms of just general concepts, general ideas, so also... A lot of Christians are not grounded in the how to live the Christian life. So hopefully we're equipping ourselves to minister to the abundance of people out there that don't have a clue what the Christian life is all about. Mary Lee? It's, it is so easy to read these things and just have them kind of slide across the surface of our mind without grasping the reality of what we are reading. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, they just slide. Yep. And if we don't have a grounding, then... It doesn't even... So it just kind of goes across like a puck across the... Exactly. Exactly. Very good analogy. I like sports analogy. Just a couple examples of like what, how he was not grounded. Say that again. How he got misled. Oh, well, apparently listening to a new age guy, clearly new age, so all automatically that ought to be your first clue. PhD in biology, so that kind of impresses you putting forth basically New Age ideas relating to the environment and putting forth, he doesn't put it as a theory, but as a fact, which they tend to do, and getting into basically what we would describe as pseudo-science, not real science. So that's kind of an overview of 
one of the issues that was involved. How would you define New Age? New Age, well, you start with their view of God, which is totally unbiblical, and then everything else stems from it. Their view of God is a pantheistic God, so it's not the God of the Bible to begin with. So nature mm-hmm. is God, right. and God is nature, or God is all, and all is God. Mm-hmm. So basically they worship the natural realm, just like Romans 1, which we looked at very carefully. So everything related to New Age, that's kind of the, the heart of it. So they believe in evolution, evolution of man, etc. David? Not just nature is God, but that you have God within you. Mm-hmm. Yep. You are God. You are God. Yep. So everything is related to that concept, including the concept of man. Yeah, I don't want to get off on New Age. New Age means Say that again? New Age means New Age. New Age sounds... I think that's stinking thinking. Or at least New Age is. So we're going to look at Romans and get into a passage. It's not an easy passage, and some of these concepts are not easy, even for those that are grounded. That's why we've spent some time looking at each of these concepts as they come up in the biblical text. But I think we've laid a foundation that we can move a little bit more rapidly. So we're talking, the basic thing that we're dealing with here is God providing righteousness for all of humanity. All of humanity stands condemned before a holy God, lacks righteousness, lacks that right standing. God has provided a means by which mankind can come into a relationship. Paul describes that as justification. It's another word for salvation, another word for redemption. Looking at it from a legal courtroom perspective, God is the ultimate judge. And he is the one that condemns. So to get a right standing before him, we must be acquitted, you might say, the word we use in the courtroom, or justified before him. And there's nothing we can do. Jesus has done it all. And then after we've been justified, now how do we live the Christian life after that? It's called sanctification, another theological term. So... Just quickly, we're talking about sanctification, the three major chapters. Individually, chapter 6, the principles. Chapter 7, problems that we'll encounter. And we'll get there shortly. And then chapter 8, to overcome those problems, we need power. So principles, problems, power. Summarize the three chapters. And we looked at last time, this is where we picked up last time, verse 4. Therefore, based on what he talked about earlier, he raised the issue. Therefore, we have been buried with him. In other words, we have been baptized into his death. So we define what he means by baptism. Spent two weeks on that, or one and a half. And since we've been baptized into his death or united with his death in some way, from God's perspective, he views us as if we were crucified on the cross, Jesus being our substitute, but we are attached to him and what he experienced, God applies and views us in light of that. So therefore, we have been buried as well. 
It's not just death, but we've been buried with him through baptism. There's the word again. He's not talking about water, so we stay dry in Romans 6, at least. So we had to go through all the explanations so that we don't automatically think of being dipped in a pool here. It's this identification idea, this cleansing idea, this union idea. In fact, we're going to see a word that explains it in verse verse 5. So, buried with him through baptism into death, so that, here's the implication of it, or the significance of it, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, we're united with his resurrection as well. Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Christ lived an earthly, visible, physical, material life, certainly spiritual as well. He was crucified on a cross, he he died, he was buried, but he was raised, and he lives newness of life, ultimate life. In fact, self-existent life, because he has self-existent life. He's experiencing self-existent resurrection life. So if we're identified with his resurrection, the significance of that is so we too might walk in newness of life. Now he's talking about living, using a metaphor, walking. And if you do a word study, it's used in a literal sense of moving from point A to point B, step by step. The analogy is we live the Christian life moment by moment, step by step, day by day. We walk the Christian life, but it's different. It's in newness of life. Only the believer has that. So we looked at the key terms. We looked at sanctification and all of the words related to it. Holiness, the word saint, the idea of uh, consecration, holiness, sanctification, they all have this basic idea of something set apart for a purpose. So God is ultimately holy. He is the one that is ultimately set apart from all things, from the whole, all of the creation. We also call that his transcendence. There's a distinction between him and the creation. He's utterly and totally set apart. He's holy. He has also chosen to select some and set them apart. That applies to the believer. So sanctification is the process of setting ourselves apart through the Holy Spirit in his power rather than our own, just like salvation. So we're talking about sanctification. We talked about death. He's talking about death here. And biblical death, starting in Genesis 3, he already started the discussion in chapter 5. Chapter 5, he says, death comes through sin, and sin came through Adam. So he traces it to Adam. So you go back to Genesis 3 to see what death is all about. And we see from that, Adam did not cease breathing as soon as he sinned. So it has to include more than just seizing breathing and the stopping of the heart. And if you look at Genesis 3 carefully, you find out that it's some comprehensive idea. He died not only spiritually in his relationship with God. He's separate from God. God seeks him out. God always takes the initiative. But his whole thinking is distorted now. So he died intellectually. How do you run away from an omnipresent God? So his theology, his thinking is all messed up. 
That's death, intellectually. Morally, he died. Now he is experiencing guilt because he's dead morally. He's died emotionally. He has fear now. His relationships are also corrupted. When he's held accountable, he blames someone else. There's only one someone else at the time. So the blame game, broken relationships. So that's the comprehensive sense of death. Comprehensive separation. We talked about spirit baptism and baptism specifically. It's uniting to Christ and all that Christ has done on our behalf. Not relating to water. Water is simply the physical public testimony of something inward and invisible. And Romans 6 is talking about that inward, invisible uniting with Christ. It is real. In fact, water baptism is the figure, you might say. You might say it's the symbol. Whereas spirit baptism is the real baptism. Almost seems the opposite, doesn't it? (laughs) You do get wet when you're dunked. That seems pretty real. Well, it is real, but it's a picture of something else. So we talked about that, and then last time we talked about life. And just as death has this more comprehensive idea, I'm using this descriptive phrase here. We're talking about this present, in Romans 6, a present comprehensive spiritual life. Certainly it has eternal ramifications, eternal life in the future. But in Romans 6, it includes more than that. In fact, eternal life is experienced now in a comprehensive sense. We have this life such that now we can renew our thinking from that deadness. We can renew our emotions from that those negative aspects. We can deal with emotions in a different way. We deal with moral issues differently, and certainly all of that works itself out in how we actually treat people, relationships, and how we live life. So that's what he's talking about here. Life in a broader, comprehensive sense. Spiritual life. Uh, So don't think of it as just simply spiritual, not touching the physical material realm, but every area that affects us, starting with the most inward change of our of our hearts. So those are the key terms. And just to remind you, we're united to Christ in his death. That's the emphasis here. There's a definite break. This is very important. There's a definite break from our bondage to sin. The unbeliever can only respond in sin, even when he's philanthropic. Even when he's a generous giver, you might say. There's always sin that taints it. Oftentimes it's a desire to be noticed by others, how generous we are. I mean, just the chance to have yourself on the back and say, well, yep. I, you know, that's how I am. Yep. I took time out of my busy schedule to help that poor little lady across the street. Yep. It may simply include just a self-satisfaction. So it's self-centered. Or it may be with a motive, maybe I'll get something back in some way, maybe publicly, popularity-wise, etc. So the unbeliever, everything that is done is tainted by sin, but this uniting of Christ breaks us from that. 
separates us, you might say. And the burial that is mentioned, I think, speaks of the certainty of the break. Just as burial is certainty of death, if there's a little bit of a pulse or if there's some evidence of life, you don't bury people, right? You try to revive them. You only bury them when you know that it's certain, in general anyway. And leading to resurrection. We are united in Christ. This is what baptism is, spiritual baptism. A uniting in his death, break from bondage to sin, burial, certainty of this break and resurrection. Now we have new life and access to resurrection life. So that's what baptism is. That's uniting to Christ. It's supernatural. It's invisible. And it involves resurrection power. And just emphasize and to round this out, this is kind of where we left off last time. Let's pick up here. And it'd probably be good to look up some of these. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But just to emphasize it, because the New Testament emphasizes over and over this idea of in Christ, being in Christ. Romans 6 is kind of the beginning of all that, or it gives us the introduction to this concept of being in Christ. It occurs, the phrase, in different forms, in him, in something related to him, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that little word, in it has this idea of this union that is established the moment we trust in him. And it, it is all-encompassing. The new creation is in Christ. We don't even have to look up that one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are a new creation in Christ because of this newness of life. We have new life, Ephesians 4. Somebody look up that one, 4.23 through 24. How about 1 Peter 3.16? Now we have a new awareness, and this one is somewhat indicated in 1 Peter 3.16. We have a new fellowship, new relationship, 1 John 1. In fact, there's several passages we could look at there, but let's focus on verse 3. Who's got Ephesians 4, first off? Jeremy, 1 Peter 3. Dave, 1 John 1, who wants to do that one? Mary Lee, Ephesians 3, while you're in... Three, Jeremy, after you read four, why don't you skip over to Ephesians three? So we have a new power. We have a new mission. We won't look up John 15. I'll summarize it for you. And all of this is a new identity in Christ. And with that new identity, there's a multitude of things that we share in, share in terms of Christ. So when you see that little phrase in Scripture, this is who we are. That's the emphasis of Romans 6. As who we are in Christ. And having that in our thoughts, in our mind. In fact, this is why we study the Scriptures, to see who we are now. That's the emphasis that Paul is making. We are no longer... From God's perspective, that person I was before I believed in Christ. And I'll remind you of the analogy that we drew last time when we uh, inducted uh, Jacob in the Albuquerque police force. Not that he really is, but we really did imagine it. 
Okay. Get a real badge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ephesians 4. You got it, Jeremy? And 23 and 24. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of It's been created outside of us, renewing of a mind. And I think that's the starting point. Remember the emphasis even in in, uh, Romans 6, knowing this, or he says, do you not know? In other words, it starts with how we view things, how we view ourselves and how we view this new identity that we have. And if we view ourselves in a certain way, it has an impact in how we act, how we live. I tried to illustrate that. So, 1 Peter 3.16, we have a new awareness as well. You got it? They have a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed, falsely accuse your good conversation. Or your conduct, good conduct. But notice conscience, and he's encouraging a new awareness. We have a, a heightened awareness of sin now, and... We have a way, and we know how to deal with it now, but we, we realize that we what we were before we trusted in Christ, so we have a new sensitivity to sin. We also have a new fellowship. This is pretty clear, First John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And what John is reporting here, things that they were eyewitnesses of, brought them into a saving relationship with this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this union, in fact, the 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen passage we looked at last time, also brings about a union with all the others that are united with Christ. So there's a union amongst us as well. We're united. So we have, there's two things there. Fellowship with the disciples or John or other believers and fellowship with God himself. In other words, there is communication, there's relationship, there's fellowship. And you can read all the verses surrounding that and what breaks that fellowship and how to restore it as well. We also have a new power, Ephesians 3.16. New power available. You got that one, Jeremy, again? That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That is true in Christ. New power. And that's the topic of not only (coughs) Romans 6 that we're going to look at today, but also uh, Romans 8 is the emphasis as well. And then John 15, we have a new mission, and there's several passages we could look at, but basically he uses the analogy of a branch and a vine, and a branch that's connected to the source of life, the source of energy, the vine. As long as there's a connection, the analogy Jesus is using there, as long as there's a connection, there's going to be a product that is produced, fruit. So if you have a cherry tree, as long as the branches are connected, if it's nourished and healthy and normal, then it produces cherries, right? Or whatever fruit tree you have. But if you break that connection, then it doesn't produce anything. It's like deadness. 
Yep, it's good for firewood. That's part of the analogy there. What Jesus is saying, there's an analogy in terms of connectedness to Jesus Christ. And as long as we are connected, then the energy, the, the, the spirit flows and we become productive. And as long as we are connected in that way, that fellowship that we're talking about, we have uh, fruitfulness. In other words, we can produce things that last forever, cannot be destroyed. So we have a new mission now. And in fact, that's part of what God is setting us apart for, is to accomplish certain purposes that, that he has. And certainly we have a new identity. So when we read scripture, you want to see who we are. And the emphasis that Paul is saying here is if you keep that, we're going to look at verse 11, maybe next week. If you keep that before you, in other words, if you consider that reality, because it is reality, that is the first step in terms of now how do I live? How do I act? So that's what we have here. Turn to the book of Ephesians, just to illustrate it real quickly. And what I'd like to do here is just kind of go over it real quickly for you. And this is just one passage. And as you read other passages and you see the little phrase, in Christ, all of these things describe who we are, who what our new identity consists in. And just begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the epistle. He wants the Ephesians to be not only convinced, but saturated with who their new, who they are in their new identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. The Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in what? In Christ. There it is. The idea of in Christ. Every spiritual blessings. We have a bank account that is full. It's rich. We're wealthy. Our problem is we don't draw on that bank account. And if we keep these things in our thinking in the midst of temptation, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of being distorted in terms of our thinking, we need to remind ourselves of who we are in order to say, oh, okay, I'm different. I don't have to live the way the world lives because I have a different identity. Verse 4, just as he chose us, how? In him, in Christ. That began with the baptism. And he did it before the foundations of the world. In other words, he foresaw all of this. In fact, he orchestrated it before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. There's the in him idea again. To himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then skip down to verse 7. Notice how it begins. In him. In Christ. But even verse 6 says, in the beloved. In the beloved, yeah. We could go to every little phrase here. Exactly. But in him we have redemption. So redemption is in him. And then he explains on that through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, etc. 
Skip down to verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which was purposed in him. See the in him over and over again. Look at the middle of verse 10, summing up all things in Christ. So all future things will be summed up in Christ. And we're part of that. We're joined to that. We're united with that. The end of verse 10, in him again, also we have obtained an inheritance. So we have a future inheritance, but it is in this relationship, in this uniting with Christ, in this baptism into Christ. And you could read verse 12 as well. Notice how verse 13 begins, in him. Notice a lot of in hymns start a lot of these parts of this sentence. You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed, and then it emphasizes again, in him. We have security in him, a sealing. This is just one passage. Look for these things in scripture as you study and think in terms of who we are. So we have all blessings, and I just have a summary here. We're chosen in him. I don't think I even read that one. Election is in Christ. Predestination is in Christ, verse 5. Redemption, verse 7. God's purposes for us, verse 9. That inheritance in verse 11. Sealing, verse 13. And we could go on and on and on. And I only have some of the major ones on the slide there. So what are the principles that we live the Christian life All of this is by grace. We don't deserve any of that. Any of what we've described is by grace. And we see he begins to introduce that at the end of chapter 5 and starts chapter 6 with it. So that's one of the main principles. Keep in mind, none of this is deserved. It's undeserved. Secondly, we have this death to sin. That is a reality. That is true. Death to sin is a new reality. And verse, what is it, 3 begins, do you not know, do you not know, and he's going to run that theme throughout, knowledge of truth is crucial, knowledge of our new identity is crucial, knowing who I am. The analogy we painted last week is Jacob, as a civilian, was different, a lawbreaker, a criminal, (laughs) had a conversion, became a police officer, baptized into the force, later on with a public ceremony so that people would recognize his now his new identity, given a badge, given a uniform, given a gun, and everything else related to be able to function with a new identity. Now he gets up every morning, he is essentially a new person. He's not a civilian anymore. He is now, he has a new identity. So now the things that he does are related to that new identity. He goes after lawbreakers. He enforces the law. He stops speeders. He, he's a counselor. He's all the things that a law officer is. That's a new identity. Now that he knows all that, he's got all the training, he's got the knowledge, he's united to a new identity, united with Christ. Now, back to, not the analogy, but what the analogy means, 
United with Christ is the essence of this new life. And we are united to it. So we, Paul uses the same analogy in Ephesians, the passage we read. Put on, like clothes, this new identity. And actually it's an infinitive, so it could be a statement rather than a command. But the idea of putting a new apparel on, a new uniform with a new badge that has with it a new purpose and a new lifestyle. So those are the principles we've looked at so far. And now we're looking at the explanation, verses 1 through 10, of this concept of this uniting or this identification with Christ. Paul raised the issue, verses 6, 1 and 2, and he's exposed this uniting with Christ, 3 through 4, and now we're going to explain it in more detail. That's 5 through 10. Okay? And if you want it on chart form, he raises the issue, how do we live now? Do we continue in sin in order that grace be more evident or abound? The answer is an emphatic, no way. Are you crazy? God forbid, is his answer. Instead, he says, don't you know that there's a new principle at work, this uniting principle with Christ? That's verse 3. And in verse 4, we finished last time the significance of it. If we're united with Christ in death, we're also united in resurrection. That's the significance of it. Because that leads to a new way of living. So he says, therefore, and now in 5 through 10, he's going to expand upon it. For if this is true, and it is, we have this co-crucifixion. So he's going to go over that. Co-resurrection, he's going to go into more detail and explain it. So everything in 5 through 10 It's just reiterating what he's already talked about. And we have a long sentence, five through seven, and like we commonly do, we break down the sentence and try to make sense of it. And like Mary Lee says, sometimes when we read it, it just kind of just goes past us, so we have to be careful and look at it. Can anyone pick out the main clause here? Let me read it first. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, that's not the main clause because of why. If. If tells us it's a conditional clause. So we have a comma there. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That is also conditional on that first clause. Mm, well, it is dependent on it. But it's conditional on the last one. He was dying as uh, Well, that's... Mm, no, I don't think so. That's probably your independent clause. Certainly we shall... He is free from sin is the independent clause. Say that again? I think the last one, he who has died is free from sin. Well, there's a semicolon there, so we have a second... Where's the semicolon? But the others are supporting that thought. That's the main thought. The others reunited with resurrection, our old self is crucified, the body of sin is done away with, we're free from sin. Well, I still think the parts certainly uh, kind of put that behind a little bit here, we shall also be, there's the main verb, we is the subject, we shall also be something in the likeness of his resurrection, that's the independent clause. So everything relates to that. Don't agree, huh? Well, because the, the statement he's trying the to make. that subordinates, it's a purpose 
clause, that our old self was crucified in him. Yeah. And then we have another purpose, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that's dependent, so that, another kind of purpose yeah, idea, no we should no longer be slaves to sin. But I still, I still think that that semicolon is... A, just our English construct to separate these thoughts. And that that's a good, that's a, that's a possibility. Dying is free from sin yeah. because that's the whole purpose that he's uh-huh. trying to say. You guys have died, you're dead in Christ. Okay, that's... But what about the four? Okay, that doesn't make it a... That can't... For he who has died, that cannot stand alone. So he should have a comma instead of a semicolon. Now up there, in the likeness of his resurrection, you can have a semicolon there because what uh, comes afterwards... To stand alone. Knowing this, that our old sin was crucified with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's somebody didn't know his punctuation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He wasn't constructing it, he's trying to understand what the Greek is. Yeah. Yeah. I just I as I okay. read that, I just think that that right now, the, in at least in the English, the four right. is but, a so how is it, what does it say in the original <laughs> Then we would know how he's reading it. There is a there is a four there. There is a gar and then yeah. I think your independent clause is certainly we shall also be in the likeness of resurrection. We have a conditional clause. If this is true, then this is this follows. So the if is dependent, and by the way, it's first class. So you could even say since this is true, knowing that's participle. Where is this this uh, thing? The if? Oh, that was clear at the top. Yeah. Okay. At the beginning, that's how it starts off. Yeah. Well, okay. The center of everything he's talking about is we are something also in the likeness of his resurrection, and he's explained it. We are baptized in his resurrection. And now he's going to expand everything that he's talking about here. So it starts off. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, in other words, first class condition, this is in fact reality. This is true. You could even say, since this is true, this follows. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I think the reason they put a semicolon here is because this could stand alone. This could be another dependent clause except for the four. Well, that's an obvious statement. He has died for that's yeah, yeah, that's like, that's like, that's, but you have to deal with, you have to deal with the four though. I know, but everybody knows that. It's like, everybody knows that. Your heart is stopped. Like, right? Yep. So I mean, that's sort of like a statement that everybody knows. Yeah. My brilliant. Yeah, you're very brilliant. Okay, let's summarize. Five through ten explains and repeats the truths of two through four. I already mentioned that. Just further explanation. Gives us reasons why, in other words, it takes it a little step further, reasons why newness of life is possible. So he's reiterating newness of life. Another thing 5 through 10 does, it emphasizes the power of resurrection that is available. That's his point. He's going to expand upon that in chapter 8. Summary, 6, 5 through 10. Got it? So let's go back, break it down. For if we have become united with him, that's a first-class condition. I already mentioned we could start it off by saying, since this is true, in other words, 
assume the premise, assume that it is true, and if this is true, then something else follows. For since we have become united with him, we could say, in the likeness of his death, going back to what he talked about in verse 4, uniting in his death, and notice it's in the likeness, we weren't actually on the cross, but in terms of this reality, there is a connection, is what he's saying. Certainly, we shall also experience other things. So we're united. And by the way, let me stress that word united or have become united. That all goes together. That translates a particular word. And by the way, in this context, remember, it, this is explanatory. Now he's explaining, using different words, what he means by baptism. It's a uniting. It's it's interpretive. He's explaining himself now. Otherwise, he'd be baptism. He could use it again, yeah. But he's explaining it. He's explaining it now, using different words. He could have said, in other words, and the word that he uses is a, a unique word, by the way. Sumfutas. How does that spell out in English? S-U-M-F-U-T-O-S. Sumfutas. U-M, is, is that, you know if that's the same root as we, some, uh, do we use it? No. Is that the sum, the total? No, in Greek it has the idea of something together with something else, a uniting idea. Yeah. It only occurs here in Romans 6. Only here. But there are examples outside of the Bible. There's also a verbal form. But the noun form literally means something growing, growing together or grown together. Some. Like something spliced into something else. Here's so that's the, where they get the word grafted then. Well, the idea, I yeah, would say. Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay. Literally something grown together. The verb only in Luke 8, 7. And in that context, it's in the parable of the seeds. Seeds growing together with thorns. And the thorns choke them out. The verb form occurs there. So to, to grow alongside of something or to grow together with something is the idea, and that's the noun form. So it explains the meaning of baptism. This is what baptism means, a uniting such that we now can grow together, not that Christ grows, but we grow into more and more like who he is, conforming to his image. That's what baptism is. So, If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We didn't live in the first century, and we weren't raised from the grave in the first century, but we experience all that Christ experienced when he was raised. So there's power there. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's the heart of the whole sentence there. Okay? So we could say... The future tense there, did you notice the future tense? And in the Greek, it's, we shall also be, shall be, anticipating. This is very important. He's talking about sanctification here. Future tense, it's a strong expectation. We have a new identity. We are new people in Christ. We have new power. So we shall be 
anticipating the rest of our lives after trusting in Christ. So it's a strong expectation, and it is a reference to this sanctifying process. It's a process. Got it? Strong expectations. Uh, I'm just adding to that same slide, by the way. Don't copy the whole slide over again. We did. So verse 6, knowing this. In other words, this is something that you want, you need to grasp. You need to think about it, know it. Cement in your thinking this new identity. This is why we study the Bible. This is why we make so a careful look at words and phrases and concepts so that we know these things. And we can add to our slides, knowing God's principles, knowing what God has revealed. We're not just reading the Bible as an intellectual exercise, but we are laying a foundation to know what God is teaching us concerning principles. Knowing this, he's reiterating that our old self was crucified with him. We've gone over all of that, except the old self. And I'm not going to have time to develop this, but I've got it in your outline, within an outline, within an outline. (laughs) On your outline sheet. Let me introduce it. This old self. Now, we have to be careful here. I think he's making a distinction, and this is very important. This old self, it's not the old nature, all right? I think he's making a distinction because of what he says later on. In order that, I'll get into more detail next week. In order that our body of sin, I think the body of sin is different here than old self. I'm going to try and develop that. So let me just, before we leave, so that you have what I'm going to try to develop I think the old self is kind of one of those broad terms that refers to the entire old life that we were in Adam, that he already talked about in a lot of detail in Romans 5. It includes the old nature, but includes condemnation as well. It includes everything that we are in Adam. Unregenerate man. And the distinction, I think, here is our old self was crucified with him. Everything that we were, there's a break, definite break. And he's going to talk about this body of sin. That's what we experience now as believers. We still have this body of sin. We are still living in sinful bodies. That's kind of the idea here. But our identity and who we are in Christ, there's a break But the body of sin leaves us with a potential to go back to that old way of life. Jacob can go back to his life of selling drugs, pimping women, doing everything that he did before he got his badge. He didn't really do that. Really? (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm using the analogy here. He can go back to robbing banks because he still... Underneath the badge, he still has a body of sin. Some capacity. Now, there's a big debate amongst theologians. Is there an old nature? Is there, you know, da-da-da-da-da? There's something there. A capacity, however you want to describe it. Most believers call it an old nature. That's the body of sin. So, next week I'll try to explain that. And in doing that, we will look at that phrase... And 
look at it in, there's a couple other places where the phrase occurs or similar to it. And what I want to develop is that the believer now has two natures. We have an old nature that was part of a broader perspective of who we were in Adam outside of Christ. The package died on the cross, but we remain with an element of it. Paul uses the word body of sin. And there's some other phrases that I think he'll use. And I'll try to put all that together for you next so week. So that's what's going to be absolutely all gone once we are resurrected and yes. we do not have yes. all this stuff <clears throat> because we are of Adam. All that stuff will be then, at that point, removed. Completely removed. Completely removed. That's glorification. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. We've, we've gone over as usual. Uh, let's close in Let's close in Christ, or yeah, close in Christ. Let's not abandon that. Closing thought, union with Christ gives us access to every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And Romans 6 is emphasizing the power that's available, resurrection power. You want to do it for us? You want to close? Thank you, Lord, that we are... Of the new existence, I pray that you would help us to realize that, to live that, to experience the death to sin. There is a that keeps holding us and binding us. Father, that you would show us that that bondage has been pulled by the King of Glory. Lord, pray that we would continue to be about putting on your armor, to be able to face the onslaught in our everyday life, and at the end of the day to stand. Amen.